When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The one thing that is absolutely fundamental, in my view, is trust. If there is no trust, then there's no communication. If there's no communication, there's misunderstanding and misinterpretation, and then there's conflict. You have to have somebody who knows how the system works, who knows how the media works, who knows what the requirements of the media are, and who is prepared to take a stand on particular issues and saying, look, thus far, no further. But it all emanates out of one quality, and that is trust between the two sides. In my view, the essential is access to and a real feel for what's actually going on. Uh, and if you've got that, the journalists are perfectly capable of extracting that from you. And uh, I don't believe any of us have the skills to, to control the direction in which almost any story runs. What we can do is we can control the opening phase of it, but you'll never control the follow-up to it. We have to have a lot of physical energy and a lot of nervous energy because it's very demanding in terms of the time you have to give to it. Uh, in the five years I spent, I would think that I had to be available, except maybe for the month of August, you had to be available all day, every day. I mean, newspapers would ring. News desk would think nothing of ringing at 2 or 3 in the morning to check a story. Um, Morning Ireland would come on very early if they needed somebody, you know. So you had different journalists would ring you in, in your home, they would ring you on holiday, they would ring you um, wherever you might be, they would stop you in the street, they would interrupt you in a pub or a restaurant. I say the mobile phones weren't around too much in those times, but certainly the being available, the being always on call, being in touch, being on top of the brief, having read the documents, knowing what was going down knowing the mind of government. And I think this is the most important thing, is that you had to know the mind of the government. You, know, you had to have a kind of a... It was a touchy-feely thing. In 1974, Jack Lynch and his party, Fianna Fáil, found themselves in opposition for the first time in 16 years. In May of that year, he decided to appoint, for the first time in the party's history, an RTE journalist posted in the north of Ireland, Frank Dunlop, as the party press officer for Fianna Fáil. When I became Fianna Fáil press officer, it was something of a culture shock. Um, poetry turned gamekeeper. Um, to see inside, from the inside, of how politicians dealt with the media, particularly people who had been in power for 16 years, continuously unbroken, suddenly finding themselves in opposition, without any of the resources of the state available to them. So they really had nobody. They did not know how the media worked. And the media was changing at that time, was evolving very quickly at that time. A very, very senior member of the parliamentary party, a former minister, uh, encapsulated it into uh, a question, how many speeches would I be writing for them? They thought that the press officer wrote speeches. That's all he did. 
He wrote speeches that would get published in the newspapers. That was the concept. That was their idea of how the system worked. Uh, you had to gently bring them along and tell them that, no, you know, it, was, it wasn't quite like that while speeches were an important element, of course. They were diminishing in the general run of how the media uh, looked at things. They basically are the channel of communication between the government of the day and the political journalists. Geraldine Kennedy, political correspondent with the Irish Times. If you want to know, to know material, you ring them rather than ring several ministers. There is sort of an obligation on them to come back with answers to you. So basically, the official communication line between the government as a whole and political correspondents over the years, because of the nature of government, the fact that the Taoiseach is the head of government, they have been equally as much the spokesman for the Taoiseach of the day as they have been for the government of the day. Every other department as well would have an official spokesman for their department rather than their minister. So if I wanted to get material on, say, the Department of Justice, I'd probably be better off going to the department spokesman itself rather than relying on the government press secretary. But if the story was big enough, and if it were the story of the day, the government press secretary would deal with the issue. Um, since 1980, I became a political correspondent in 1980, when I went to the first Sunday Tribune. Before that, I had been in the environs of uh, the Dole as a Dole reporter and spent some of my time filling in for my colleagues in the Irish Times. But political correspondent proper and a member of the lobby since 1980. A member of the lobby means that you are part of the government briefing system. The Dáil reporters would not be. To be a member of the lobby, you have to uh, work for a daily or a Sunday publication, a national broadcasting medium. Now, that whole area has extended greatly since 1980. At, at about that time, you might have had, oh, six or seven political correspondents, Irish Press, Independent, Irish Times, RTE. Now you have all the other uh, radio stations for, for a start. You have a plethora of Sunday papers who have full-time political correspondents. So the membership of the lobby now would be, I think, at the last function, 18 to 20. It's grown very large. Each day, when you started out, you were never quite sure what the day would bring. PJ Mara, Government Press Secretary to Charles Hawhey's administration from 1987 to 1992. But a typical day would start very early in the morning at home when the, when the newspapers were delivered. And uh, it was always a, um, a kind of a rule in our office, which was, you know, dictated by the Taoiseach, and there, there should be no surprises. That, you, know, that you, had, you had to have a pretty good idea before you went to bed the night before what the newspapers were going to be dealing with. So that meant that you, you know, were working quite late the previous evening. You had talked to the editors or political editors or political correspondents or writers or colour writers or whatever as to what was what was going down. But when the papers came in the morning, inevitably there were things that, you know, required dealing with. So you'd have to have all that well digested by 7.30, 8 o'clock in the morning. Our office started early, uh, and then the, the teacher at that time, uh, Charles Hawhey, he was an early riser as well, so he'd be on the case very early in the morning looking for explanations or demanding answers and whatever else. We had an early morning meeting then in government buildings, with uh, himself and uh, myself and Martin Manser, and where we would look at the overnight stuff, what needed a response or what didn't need a response, you know, 
uh, what the papers overnight were likely to bring during the day at the order of business, special notice questions and all of that. So that you know, uh, required maybe the preparation of uh, draft answers or you know, information had to be got from either his own department in the Taoiseach's office or from various government departments. So that's usually finished by about 9, 9.15. So then, but that pretty well set the agenda for the day. Then you had, inevitably, early in the morning, you, you'd have requests from, if you didn't have them the night before, from the early morning radio programmes, uh, for the mid-morning radio programmes, for the evening newspapers at that time, because there were two at that time, the Evening Press and the Evening Herald, both of whom had uh, political correspondents working in Leinster House, Des Mullen and um, Johnny Wallace, the late Johnny Wallace for the Evening Press. They would be on by about 8, 8.30 looking for some kind of response, a lead, a line on the overnight stuff. So you were up and running from about 7.30, and you'd be going right then through up to the midday news bulletins because people from RTE, and it was really only RTE at that time, would come on looking for people to go on bodies, performers, answers, responses, positions, comments. There weren't many typical days. Peter Prendergast. Government Press Secretary to Gar Fitzgerald's government from December 1982 to December 1986. Uh, but I, I, I suppose if, if you took it in terms of activities, from early morning and uh, the first part of the day, one was concerned with what was actually being reported in the media, not just in Ireland, but in the UK or uh, anywhere. Because if a story burst anywhere... Uh, around the world, somebody was very likely to come and say, what's the Irish government's reaction? It could be anything from foreign affairs to even a social happening. If something uh, erupted about abortion or divorce in Australia, it was quite likely that immediately you would have journalists ringing up, what does the Irish government think about this? Well, a typical day for a government press secretary, I doubt if it's changed in the, uh, the years since I was the government press secretary, but it's virtually a 24-hour day. Uh, because you're constantly on call, you, your chief employer, the boss, is the Taoiseach. Uh, forget about the government, uh, forget about anybody else. The Taoiseach of the day is the boss. For the Irish Times, because our, we, we don't have to start writing till 7 or 8 in the evening, it's not necessary, say, for me to come into the door till about midday, though I would have had made a number of calls uh, from home in the morning. You'd have your lunch in the door usually, where you'd run into people and hear what the talk of the day was. You would cover Taoiseach's question time on Tuesday and Wednesday, where the Taoiseach uh, takes questions for three quarters of an hour. That would be a normal convention. There often would be a row where the opposition would be trying to raise issues of the day at 20 past four. You would cover that. And then the level of interest you'd have in the bills being debated through the doll would depend on whether they were controversial, their importance or not. Then you would be briefed around tea time. The other parties would be also briefing you or sending your statements on their position on happenings and you probably wouldn't begin writing your material till about 6.30. It is offensive in my view and always has been that if you have people designated by the national newspapers, radio and television to have specific responsibility for reporting on government and politics that you cannot trust them. You have to. And you can, in my experience. Yes, difficulties arise, mistakes are made, People stumble inadvertently or otherwise. Embargoes are broken, confidences are broken, or whatever. That's Murphy's law. It happens. We're human. Nobody's going around saying that it's done deliberately. But if the government of the day 
wants to have its views contextualized, be it about a particular item of policy or a particular announcement or whatever, they just cannot afford to take the media for granted as a vehicle of communication, unquestioning. If everything that happens in the country winds itself one way or another through the doll, its source, more often than not, will be the political correspondence room. Nowadays we take it for granted, but were it not for this room and its function, things might look very different on our political landscape. Article 40, Section 6, Paragraph 1 of the Irish Constitution preserves for the press their rightful liberty of expression, including criticism of government policy, so long as it does not undermine public order or morality or the authority of the state. Every working day, in a room located on the top floor of Leinster House, the government press secretary answers questions on behalf of the government raised by political correspondents. The most frequent press briefing that would happen, I brief political correspondents every day, every working day, every weekday. And that was a very informal gathering, but I stuck to it. There was a five o'clock briefing every day. And if you missed five o'clock, you missed part of the day, as some of the advertisements said. But it was genuinely quite informal. The political correspondents had a suite of rooms in Leinster House. The political correspondents have very bad accommodation in Leinster House and it's very overcrowded. There are eight per room. The eight wouldn't be in each room every day. Basically, any time from 5.30, say, to 6.30, the government press secretary, and increasingly in recent years, the deputy government press secretary, who usually has the title head of the government information service, this person would represent the second coalition party as we've had coalitions, both of them would come over around tea time and give you the briefing. It takes place in the political correspondence room. There would be somebody from RTE, Irish Times, Irish Independent, Today FM, TV3 sometimes. They would be the regulars who would be there. On occasions, the political correspondents from the Sunday papers would come along if there was a very big issue that they thought that they were going to cover towards the end of the week. And I would go over to them, give them any information that I had, which was always inadequate. I would have thought probably one day out of two, I had no particular uh, story to impart. They were dangerous days because the journalists still had to write stories. And their editors were waiting for them, what new from the door. So they would then raise, if I wasn't filling their space and their interest, they had the, the job of raising the story themselves. So, literally, they would raise and discuss anything with you. But the essence of that, it, it, it was hugely informal. Even though, if I said something, it was serious. It was taken seriously, it was likely to be reported. Still, the whole atmosphere and mood was completely informal. Other occasions, I mean, let's say, work related to the presidency of the European community would be very formal, room full of hundreds of journalists... Briefing would be quite formal, very detailed, have to be deadly accurate, and questioning would come in a variety of languages from people whose perspectives I mightn't be particularly familiar with. So a German standing up and asking a question, I wouldn't know with the same degree of intimacy where he was coming from, whereas if it was a British or an Irish journalist with whom I was extremely familiar. Now, in a situation where you have that kind of uncertainty... It's a much stiffer, much more formal situation. 
I would regard, I don't know whether they do so or not, but part of the value for a Taoiseach and a government of having a government press secretary is that the political correspondence would often be their first outside sounding board, independent sounding board for a policy, a statement or an event. And certainly PJ Mara and I think Peter Prendergast would carry back what we had to say to the political system. And it was quite interesting. Often a government press secretary would come over with a story thinking that such and such was the story, right? Whereas it would be a different angle that would sort of excite the media and the world outside. The press briefings always took place in the political correspondence room, and I think, I think they still take place there. By and large, the atmosphere was uh, pretty good. Uh, sometimes it could become a bit fraught. If they uh, Polkars were pretty well-informed and are a pretty well-informed bunch about what's happening because they're working out of Leinster House, they're talking to deputies, they're talking to senators, they're talking to junior ministers, senior ministers, opposition people, and so on and so on. So they have a pretty good idea of what's happening and what's going around. And uh, so they were would be uh, pretty focused and knowledgeable in their questioning, and uh, so you had to be pretty well-informed going into them. If you didn't have the information, they'd expect you to go and get it uh, and get back to them. Uh, you had to be available to them. It was um, always very challenging. It was always something that uh, you had to prepare for. You couldn't wing it. I remember one particular one in New York with Jack Lynch towards the end of his tenure of office. In fact, it was in late November, early December 1979 when there was a particularly touchy briefing with the political correspondence and it related to events that were taking place in Ireland. But the Taoiseach and the uh, Minister for Foreign Affairs, Michael Kennedy, at the time, and the political correspondents were in America. So what was happening was that the political correspondents were being briefed from Ireland and were asking the Taoiseach and the Minister for Foreign Affairs questions about events in Ireland, what was happening and what were his views uh, and all of that. And distance at that time, and still is, uh, a very serious disadvantage when you're dealing with sensitive issues. That's one. I remember another briefing which related to security, which caused something of a, of a difficulty subsequently, and which I'm not prepared to talk about for uh, obvious good reasons, and not least of which I was a signatory to the Official Secrets Act. Whatever that means, but it's still the Official Secrets Act, and I signed it, and therefore I have to comply with it. More often than not, it's a sort of a discussion or a chat. Some components of it would be formal and on the record, which means it's the government spokesman saying whatever he's saying. Some of it then would be off-the-record material, which you would read in the newspapers as government sources, a government source or, what, or whatever. Towards the end of the 1970s, the relationship between the body politic and the media was undergoing a transition. The continued proliferation of the media within modern society had resulted in it becoming a powerful opinion former a point not lost on those at the centre of power in Leinster House. In order to disseminate their message, the main political parties began to deploy the services of press officers. Well, the government had this machinery called the Government Information Service, which, in effect, it transmitted tonnes of documents to the media every day, speeches, statements... Uh, and acted really as a post office. The material came in from the various departments uh, n without any forewarning, without any reference as to the content, 
or the importance or any prioritizing as to what should go and should not go. And all of that material was then repackaged to the various news desks, correspondence or whatever, by courier or by army outrider. And that was the dissemination of information, the government information service. A former RTE person, Murish McAneel, was the head of the government information service at that time. Traditionally, the media had been regarded up to the early 70s by politicians as something to be used. Uh, If you want to say something, call in the media and tell them and then dismiss them, and it'll appear in the paper the following day. There was that odd relationship. In the period between 1974 and 1977, I had an opportunity to look at and see how the Government Information Service was working, albeit for another government. And despite what the perceptions may be or what the public might think, there is a considerable amount of interaction between the political parties at the level. And I would have discussed various things with various people, including the media and including Marish McAneel, about the mechanics and the logistics of the Government Information Service. And it was then that it came home to me very forcibly that Marish McAneel started the process of trying to widen the remit of the Government Information Service. He brought in new people. And as in contradistinction to what it had been up to that point, a post office sending out material from other government departments willy-nilly, without any control, just sending out the material that was sent to it. He began to try and get people, press officers, into the government information service who would specifically handle specific areas of government and specific departments, and that there would be liaisons in the government information service between uh, the government in government buildings and the various departments around the government, whatever it may be, defence, you know, justice, post and telegraphs as it then was, and the media. There were incidents which were very pressured. I mean, they had very complicated material to deal with, as, for instance, say, when the Anglo-Irish Agreement came along. There were literally acres and acres of highly significant detail. Every phrase in a seven- or eight-page communique was loaded. It is hugely pressured, because I would be coming into that maybe 24 hours before a journalist, but not much more, which is not all that long. And I needed to be master of what was written on that piece of paper so that I could cope with the questions of journalists. So that's a huge pressure. But the job in general, no, it was no more pressure than any other job. The availability was a bit of a strain. I mean, unfortunately, the American journalists got active about three o'clock in the morning, which was usually when I tried to be asleep. So I was frequently woken at that hour of the morning. But, uh, I mean, I, I fairly willingly did that because I had... Part of my mission was to begin to develop media contacts in the United States and develop a relationship, and that simply was the price of doing that. I think it was very hard on family. They never expressed it to me, but I think it was. I mean, I know subsequently, because now that I'm out of the whole political thing, politics generally is hard for families, for conventional families to cope with. And when I had finished my stint and gone off to work with the European Commission, I really found I had to reconstruct a relationship with my children who were, you know, grown up uh, at that stage, but I had certainly missed eight or nine years of their lives. I remember 
at one point, somewhere along my active political time, I actually came home at about four o'clock in the evening for some reason. Can't recall what. But my little daughter, who was five or six at the time, looked at me in total horror. What are you doing here? Remember, that struck me uh, at the time, that it was so unusual to have been around when they were up. Now, that must be replicated in most people's lives who are involved in politics. Well, you were at the centre of things, you were involved. You didn't get time to think about it too much because there was always something happening, there was always something that you had to deal with. It was always a mini-crisis or a major crisis or a might-be crisis or whatever. You know, it was a kind of a crisis management job. I never found it particularly pressurised, although I suppose it was, as I say, but I enjoyed it. I think if you, you had to have a particular temperament, if you were the kind of person who worried or fretted or you know, turned, twisted and turned at night in your bed and you couldn't get any sleep because you were worried about what you said and how will that play and how will that come back and will it look OK in the papers and did I get it right or would I be misquoted? And if you worried about things like that, you'd have no business doing it. But as long as you took it as a, you know, a job that you had to do and that you had signed up to do, you got on with it, you focused on it, you dealt with it with a certain amount of humour. And I think that's part of the thing that I tend to deal with many of these things in a humorous way. Uh, I think that probably helped me and it probably helped other people as well, you know, who were working with me that we, you know, this wasn't the end of the world. It was important, but, you know, it wasn't life and death and, you know, life would go on. And I also knew in a way that, you know, this was a short-term commission. You know, this was not going to be my career forever. You know, you, you get your, it's Andy Warhol time. If you, get, you get your 15 minutes and you get on, you do the best you can, you get off. If you thought that you were the most important person in the history of the world, if you took yourself too seriously, if you were a warrior, yeah, it would be pressurised. I finished in 90, uh, as government press secretary in 92. And if you think back then, you know, the, the mobile phones weren't um, that highly developed, you know, and they were really car phones rather than hand instruments, whatever else. So if somebody were looking for me, they'd have to, you know, you'd have to leave a note of where you were going to be. If you're going to a particular pub or restaurant, you have to let people know where you were going to be so that if the press rang my home or if they rang the office, people could say, well, PJ is in wherever he is and people would find you. If you were leaving there, then you'd have to uh, go and uh, leave a number there. It was like that Woody Allen film years ago where the guy kept ringing up saying, I'm now at such a number and I'm going to such a number. So there was, a, there was an element of that in it. Seven days a week, 24 hours a day. And there were periods where if there was another hour in the day, you could easily have used it. Particularly, I remember at a time when there was the dirty protest in Northern Ireland and the hunger strikes. That was a particularly difficult period for everybody, including the government down here. And it didn't matter what time of the day or night, the phone never stopped ringing. People who become Taoiseach of Ireland tend to be very committed people have come through the mill and are survivors. So they know what a hard day is and they demand that the people who are working with them know what a hard day is too. I remember one Taoiseach ringing me at 2 o'clock in the morning to know what was the lead story in the Irish Times. I remember uh, one Taoiseach ringing me on a Saturday afternoon at 4 o'clock to know what would the lead story be in the following day's Sunday papers. They are on call all of the time, and they're actually no good to their government if they're not on call. 
It's better for the government of the day if I ring up a government press secretary at 12.30 and even get him out of bed than it is to run with the story without getting the full facts or confirmation or denial of it. Most of the government press secretaries' wives seem to know that their husbands have a hell of a job and they're usually very nice. Over the last 20 years, perhaps the most notable change in the reporting of politics has been in its vocabulary. The spin a story or issue receives attempts to predetermine our reaction to it. Whether it does or not depends on three factors. Firstly, the ability of the government press secretary to successfully spin it to the political correspondents. Secondly, they have to buy it. And thirdly, they have to sell it to us, the listeners, viewers and readers. Following Fianna Fáil's landslide victory in 1977, Frank Dunlop was invited down to Roaring Water Bay, near Skibbereen in County Cork, where Jack Lynch had a summer house. I was just invited down for the weekend and we discussed lots of things. We talked about lots of things. He didn't quite ask me what job I wanted, but he put it in the following phraseology, I presume you'll want the big job. That was his phraseology. The big job in his terminology at that time was head of the government information service. At this stage, my thinking had moved on a little bit, but I didn't quite say that to him at that stage. I just said, yes, and he said, well, it's yours. And I asked for one other consideration. I asked him to effectively do the job. I would need to be ranked in the public service. My understanding is, I can be corrected if it's wrong, but I understand I am the last public interest appointment to the public service at the rank of Assistant Secretary. Uh, So that's some sort of record. Well, I don't know, I think this thing spin is, is largely, you know misunderstood, overstated. I mean, a government or a party or a department or minister or Taoiseach will have a position. The opposition will clearly have another position, a different position. And I think all you can do is go and as vigorously and as comprehensively uh, as possible explain the government position, the Taoiseach's position, the department's position, the party position, their stance why they're doing something, why they think that is the right way to do it, and deal with that, as I say, intensively and comprehensively as you can. And that's been, if you like, I mean, you know, politics is by its nature an adversarial business. You know, we have one way of doing things. We want to proceed in a particular way. We want to deal with an issue in a particular way. This is the decision of the government explained to me by the Taoiseach or by the minister involved or the individual involved. I understand it, absorb it, discuss it. I don't have any real role in the shaping of that. I might have views which I'll express, of course. Do you think this is wise? Do you think we could do it differently? But once the decision is taken, you've got to get on with it and then you've got to go to war. You've got to go to battle for your side of the argument. I always knew, and I was always very clear, that journalists weren't just going to take my word. It was important that I, you know, set out my stall or the government's stall very clearly. 
that if there was any dispute uh, or argument about the government's position, that I defended that and defended it vigorously. Of course, political correspondents were right in that they just didn't take my word for it. They go off into the political undergrowth, if you like, and they talk to Fianna Fáil deputies, backbenchers, opposition backbenchers, senators. They would talk to their own sources in the public service. And there was an element of check and double check, you know, in all of this. And I think they were right to do that. And they would come back and say, well, you know, we've been hearing that. It isn't quite the way you said it. And it's, you know, somebody else has a slightly different view. And then you'd have to defend that. Which kind of puts you on your toes. As far as one of the golden rules, you can never, ever, ever tell a, a lie to a journalist. And I don't think I ever did in my life. I was often guilty of sins of omission. You would maybe leave out something that you felt mightn't be helpful to your case. Clearly, you didn't put in everything you know, that you were aware of or might have known. That was their duty and their obligation to find that out if they could or if they... And mostly they did. The old phrase, there are two sides to every story. Now, as you and I know, there are many, many sides to every story. One element of a particular story is either newsworthy or it's not. And it's what I call the sex. I don't mean sex per se, but I mean what makes a story sexy. And obviously, in the political arena, stories become sexy from a particular presentation from the presentation of some of the elements of it as distinct from other elements of it. Sean Lemass had a famous phrase one time. He said, you know, you don't... It's not always necessary to tell 100% of the truth. Now, what he meant by that, and he's been misquoted, what he meant by that, not that people should lie, but that uh, sometimes it's only necessary to tell 90% of the story or 80% of the story. If you find it necessary to spin, it has a pejorative connotation. It doesn't mean telling lies. It doesn't mean being economical with the truth. It doesn't mean being disingenuous. It means extrapolating out those elements of a particular situation that are of advantage. And in the full knowledge that these are going to be ignored in favour of the sexy elements of the story. The reason journalists exist and the reason journalists maintain their independence is that they can be sceptical of that presentation. And they're testing it from the first moment it is made. And usually what happens with a story, on the first day, the facts of the story are reported. The second day, the reactions come in, certainly the the, the strong reactions. And what certainly I found myself doing would be looking at the reactions, looking at the criticisms, and I wouldn't hesitate to make journalists aware of why those criticisms are coming, if I could identify the interest of a a critic or otherwise, I would see it as my job to make them aware of that, to help their judgment in that sphere. I don't call that spinning in the sense of being unreal. I mean, what would somebody expect you to do, to present the thing in a higgledy-piggledy way? I mean, even the journalists would consider you to be unprofessional at that point. Their expectation is that you're going to present the story as intelligently as you can in the interest of the government you serve. You give the information, you watch the reaction, you respond to the reactions. From your knowledge, because the government press secretary is in a two-way situation, you are probably able to anticipate the initial criticisms that will come. And quite often, certainly, I would have attempted to meet those criticisms without them ever being raised. 
when you are representing the government's position on a daily basis on a variety of different issues, trust and the ability to understand your employers are essential qualities which have become paramount to the success of this working relationship. Because I then had first-hand experience of the Government Information Service and I watched how it worked on a daily basis and I saw the amount of time and effort that was concentrated in the actual transmission of ordinary, everyday information to the public and to the media. And one of the things that fascinated me was that the Government Information Service, by virtue of its name, was regarded by certain elements of the public as being all omniscient, you know, ring them up about anything. Somebody rings from Mayo, where do I apply to get my driving license? Somebody rings from Cork, where do I apply for my television license? Somebody rings with a problem that they cannot solve, ring the government information service. They'll either solve it for you or they'll put you in touch with somebody who will solve it for you. So you had, by virtue of the fact of its name, a public perception that the government information service was this omniscient area of government which would tell you how to solve things or what to do. And from the media's point of view, it was the source of, or was supposed to be the source of, quite a significant amount of information which they could turn into stories or report on. no longer concerned or interested in weighty documents from the Government Information Service about the price of eggs. They were much more interested in the development of political policies, of governmental policies, or Fianna Fáil policies, or whatever. And that is when I came to refine my thinking to creating a post called the Government Press Secretary. I put a proposal to the Taoiseach, who brought it to the Cabinet, and that was agreed in 1978 and I became the first government press secretary in 1978. The press secretary job is a quasi-political job, or in many ways a wholly political job. You know, I don't think anyone believes the fiction that the government press secretary is in some way a public servant. You know, he or she is not a public servant. You come with your political masters and you leave with them, and uh, whilst you're there, it's your job and your duty to defend them, as honourably as you can, without doing anything dishonourable, and I think that I managed to do that. Politicians' view of events sometimes does not accord with journalistic view, and it can get quite tetchy at times. There are people who would suggest that Charlie Hawhey's relationship with the media was fractious or wasn't as comfortable as Jack Lynch's. The idea that one Taoiseach would succeed another and that there would be, one would be a clone of the other is just purely ridiculous. I mean, Charlie Hawhey was a different personality, a different way of doing things, had a different managerial skills, had a different outlook, including on what the role of the media was, I hasten to add, than Jack Lynch had. When I started, you had Frank Dunlop. He was uh, Jack Lynch's spokesman and in the early years was Charlie Hawhey's spokesman. As he was coming to the end of his time as spokesman for Mr Hawhey, he came privately to the political correspondence one evening and said, I can no longer vouch for the veracity of what I'm saying and bear this in mind from now on. He said this privately because he felt he had been misled on something that he was asked to tell us. 
if there is not a good relationship, almost symbiotic relationship, if there's not a good relationship between the Taoiseach and the press secretary, it doesn't work. There has to be a trusting relationship, it has to be a professional relationship, and it has to be a relationship in which the press secretary is prepared to say, I'm sorry, that won't work. I'm not doing that. That won't work. Professionally, I'm now advising you that that's wrong. You cannot do that. You can try it if you want to, but it won't work, and certainly don't come back and blame me if it doesn't work, because I'm telling you now it won't work. But there has to be a good trusting relationship. Otherwise, the system falls apart. I remember Peter Prendergast saying to me at the time, when he was leaving and I was taking over, that one thing that was absolutely sure, that if you were government press secretary, you weren't going to get much time for strategic long-term planning because the immediacy of news gathering and news presentation required that you'd be responding to the, the needs and the requests and the demands of the working press, whether they were political writers or colour writers or radio or television or uh, written press, whether they were national or international, local or overseas, they would all come on, particularly in the early part of the day. As always happens, people make mistakes. Government ministers make mistakes. Taoiseachs make mistakes. There is, I suppose, a reluctance amongst uh, politicians, the same as every other group in society, to accept that they maybe they have been wrong. And that can be tricky, you know. People out watching their television, listening to the radio bulletins, reading their newspapers, are well able to make their own minds up. They can read between the lines. You know, uh, they, they have bullshit detectors, you know. First of all, they always knew I was available. I didn't carry a mobile phone, but that wasn't necessary. Uh, I mean, they all had access to whatever telephones I was likely to be near. And I always ran back. I always rang back. It didn't matter what, it didn't matter whether we were in the doghouse or whether we weren't in the doghouse. I was absolutely clear, if you were to develop yourself as a credible source, that meant availability. And you simply had to be available. The level of honesty has been quite good. I think the rules of the game, in a sense, or what we would expect, would be that they would never tell you lies and that they would never purposely mislead you. I think that would be the understanding underpinning the whole briefing system. You certainly would not expect them to tell you all that they knew. You certainly would expect them to put the best possible spin on issues for the government of the day, but you would not expect them to tell you lies, and by and large, that has been fulfilled. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.